Sequel Cast 2 and Friends is a part of the HyperX Podcast Network. This is a vintage episode of Sequel Cast 2 and Friends. Audio quality may not be up to current standards. We apologize for the nastier audio artifacts. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a podcast that looks at movies in a franchise one film at a time. We're looking at the Jaws franchise. Uh, this week we're looking at Jaws 2. I'm Matt. With me is Thrasher. Hello. I better take another bite out of this fish. Jaws 2. Jaws 2. Jaws 2. Jaws 2. Jaws 2. Jaws 2. <laughs> this is the only Jaws one with lyrics two. to the theme song. Exactly. Um, the theme song to Sequel Cast is written and performed by Mark with a C. Check out his music at markwithac.com. And a sequel cast is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Check out other great film and TV show podcasts at battleshippretension.com. And a great way you can listen to sequel cast is through an app called Stitcher, which lets you listen to podcasts streaming on the go. You can download it from stitcher.com slash sequelcast. And if you do that, you get a sequel cast podcast automatically added as one of your favorites on there. And check out other shows and uh, episodes of our show at SequelCast.com or some of our other great shows like Video Game Sequel Cast, Sequel Commentary, and Sequel Cast Special. So Jaws 2, released in 1978, directed by Janot Zvark, uh, written by Carl Gottlieb and Howard Sackler, based on creator, characters created by Peter Benchley, starring Roy Scheider, Lorraine Gary, Murray Hamilton, music by John Williams, cinematography by Michael Butler. This was uh, distributed by Universal Pictures. A running time of 116 minutes off a budget of $30 million, grossed um, $208 million thereabouts worldwide. So uh, at the time of its release, Jaws 2 was the most successful sequel ever released. Until Rocky 2. Until Rocky 2, as you pointed out. And I, you know what? I, w- I would love to see Rocky 3 fight Jaws 4. Um, there is, that reminds me of a story, but that's not until Jaws 3, which we'll get to next week. Okay. So, so when did you first see Jaws 2? Oh, I have a fascinating tale to tell, and one that I've actually been wanting to tell since the sequel cast started, because I knew this day would inevitably come. Uh, I first saw this when it cropped up on, I think, HBO in the early, early 80s. Uh, and you know, Jaws, Jaws was just omnipresent. It was the the shark movie. So even though I had not seen the original Jaws at the time, I knew what Jaws was. You know, big big shark eats people. So the movie comes on, and it's just those uh, underwater shots with the creepy Jaws music playing. And that freaked me out so much, I uh, turned off the TV, and I've never seen the movie past that point. Everything I know about Jaws 2 comes from the Mad Magazine parody Jawed 2, which I got in a classic Mad reprint when I was about uh, probably eight or nine or so. 
So have you ever seen the entire movie then? No, I never have. I've just okay. read the Mad Magazine parody many, many times. There you go. Um, yeah, and, Jaws... Oh, go on. That used to be a lot more common, you know, knowing about movies only from the Mad Magazine version. I always liked the Mad Magazine movie parodies that were uh, illustrated by Mort Drucker. Mm. He had a real nice sort of realism uh, look. His stuff had a lot of shadows to it. I don't know. The stuff, to me, looked more three-dimensional as a comic. Good sense like, of uh, caricature, too. Uh, yes. Um, and just it really stood out from like the Sergio Argonez stuff, which was good, too. But, you know, that's more like flat, uh, more simplistic sort of drawings. Jaws 2, I watched uh, the first time for the sequel cast. Uh, you know, I had never seen it before, and I'm not sure why. The original Jaws is one of my dad's favorite movies, and he watched it a few times uh, with him when I was growing up. And um, he never brought up the sequels at all. In fact, I think in some ways my dad tends to avoid movie sequels. Because if they're really bad, they just make them angry. I've and, been uh, there. Yeah, sure. You know, you, you have such cherished memories of the original. Why sully them? But on sequel cast, that's what we do. We talk about all these sequels to films. Uh, I do want to point out, you know, this film came out in 1978. And it was the number five grossing film of the year in the U.S., uh, above it at number one was Grease, number two, Animal House, number three, Superman, the motion picture, and number four, the Clint Eastwood starring with an orangutan film, Every Which Way But Loose. Which I'm shocked has not been remade with a CGI orangutan. Voiced by uh, Clint Eastwood, of course. It's just like, it just seems like <laughs> something Adam Sandler's production company would be all over. I would think so, and I think you would do, if you had it as a CG, uh, yeah, I mean, it worked for Kangaroo Jack, I guess, so, which isn't a remake, but. Did it, did it really work for Kangaroo Jack? Well, it, it got a sequel that was, uh, animated. Um. Which I'm sure we'll cover one day. Uh, you never know. I hope not, but possibly. <laughs> so, Jaws 2. Um, Jaws 2. The director... Janot Zvark uh, had earlier directed a, a horror film called Bug and another film called Extreme uh, Close-Up. But later on, after Jaws 2, he directed things like Somewhere in Time, Supergirl, and Santa Claus the Movie. And he's directed lots of television over the years from way back, like uh, Rockford Files, up to more recent stuff like Smallville and um, Fringe. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so Jaws 2... You look at it, and they wanted a. Um, they keep things very similar to the original Jaws. It's set at uh, Amity Island. Just like the first. You have Roy Scheider back as Martin Brody, but you don't have uh, Richard Dreyfus. What are the odds a giant shark would come back and terrorize the same community? They don't talk about that too much, funnily enough. They don't give any sort of explanation as to why that is. It's just, uh, I mean, the opening of the film, like you were mentioning, that scared you as a kid, Thrasher, these pretty beautiful underwater shots of fish and all the stuff in the ocean. And you see some uh, deep-sea divers are photographing the wreck of uh, the orca, the, the boat from the first film. And all of a sudden you see the terrified look on their faces as they... Uh, as they get attacked by the great white shark. Yeah, and I think I think that's about where I I, uh, I I panicked and turned off the TV. It is it is a pretty intense intro. 
It is. It's nice they got John Williams back into the music for this. He did the music for the first film, Jaws. And you uh, you look at all that, and the beginning is really atmospheric. They don't, you know, they don't try to have another uh, girl swimming in the ocean getting eaten by a shark again, or getting eaten by two sharks <laughs> or something. Although they do have a water skier attacked by a shark. You do get a water skier attacked by a shark, uh fairly early in the film in a pretty ludicrous uh, sequence. Which is actually one of my favorite uh, gags in the Mad Magazine parody, uh, parody where the girl's like, oh, I I came here on this vacation to get away from the city and all this, that stress, but I still feel like I'm being followed. And then it shows the, the woman who's driving the boat, Terry, Terry, oh, she's such a show-off. First, she skis on two skis. Then she shows that she can ski on one ski. Now she's off somewhere skiing with half a ski and no, and no boat. And she's just looking at the cut cord and the splintered remains of uh, of the uh, skis floating on the surface of the water. Well, that's such a comic moment to me in the film is that, you know, the, the one girl is uh, water skiing behind the boat and she gets eaten by the shark. And then the speedboat's driver uh, tries to defend herself by she has cans of gasoline on the boat and she throws them all around the boat and kind of towards the shark and shoots a flare gun towards it, and the entire boat explodes. Which seems like a very <laughs> premeditated accident. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, really weird. You do get, like, scarring on the shark, which is a neat little visual thing to make the shark different. I mean, it's not the same shark as the first film. But, so it, it looks kind of scarred and stuff. But, I mean, as I said when we talked about the first film last week, and you can check out that episode, as all our other episodes at SequelCast.com, is... The shark is really, um, gee, how do I put this? More puppety? It's not quite as good as the one from the first film. I don't know if I'd say puppety. But already it goes right into the shark attacks. It does, you know, it doesn't set a lot of time introducing these characters. I mean, part of what made the original so great is you have the uh, characters of uh, Brody, Hoover, and Quint, you know, and, and their interplay with each other. And here, um, you just don't get that. You do get Roy Scheider as Martin Brody, and uh, Lorraine Gary plays his wife, Ellen, again. But, but it, actually, it's about, like, the teenagers. On, yeah, on, on something that, I mean, this movie was made in, in, the 70, in the late 70s before Hollywood went completely sequel and franchise crazy. And so one of the things that, so different from this movie compared to sequels like we get today. There's absolutely no attempt made to raise the stakes. It's just another giant shark. It's not bigger. It's not meaner. It doesn't have any crazy powers. It's really not any hungrier. It's just another giant shark. All all they do is 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 have more kills earlier in the film. Right. You have um, more kills more often. But even then, you know, you don't care about the characters. This uh, In the first one, it was kind of a, you know, it kind of tricks you by them catching a shark in the beginning, and then they don't, it's not the actual shark they're looking for. And uh, in this one, they even have this basically the same conflict where Murray Hamilton plays the mayor again, who doesn't think the town has a shark problem and doesn't want him to publicize the issue, which is the which- same conflict as the first film. Which is so weird, because if this really did happen, 
he would you would totally capitalize on it and make make Amity like the shark capital, America's shark capital, and you know make it you know open an aquarium and really you know bring the tourists in. And second, it's the thing that bothers me in every action movie. The person who survived the first action movie and who was, in fact, the hero in the first movie, no one believes them when the same thing happens again, no matter how many times it happens. Well, there, there's one, a few interesting scenes in this film, but the one I like the most is uh, Martin Brody, played, of course, by Roy Scheider, is uh, at the beach. And he thinks he sees some weird movement in the ocean, and the beach is really crowded. And he runs towards the water and waves everyone, get out of the way, get out of the water. And he shoots towards the water, and uh, it's not a shark, it's just a school of fish. Which is weird, because schools of fish, unless they're a school of sharks, really doesn't look like a shark. It doesn't I've look seen, like a shark, both. but I like how he's haunted by that. Oh, that's that's true. Uh, and uh, I that, think that's that pretty neat. Issue. It's a neat little moment that's uh, sort of unsuspected. And, uh, I mean, not only do you have the character of Martin Brody, you have uh, his kids, uh, Mike Brody, who's the older one, played by Mark Gruner, and Sean Brody, played by Mark uh, Gilpin. And there's just that not much of the characters. Like, Mike Brody has a, a summer job working at the beach, and uh, Sean, is uh, the younger brother, is... Uh, you know, just sort of like a little kid. And a lot of the movie uh, tries to make as the main characters this group of teenagers who, who couldn't be more interchangeable if you tried. Like, there's Which, nothing about them that makes them interesting like the characters in the first film. That is actually a running gag throughout the Mad Magazine parody. Like, whenever two teenagers talk, they always then, ha like, after like getting whatever story beat across they need to, they then have to figure out, wait, did I tell that thing to the right person? Who are you? No, who are you? And like when they go out on a date, have we dated before or is this our first date? Because you look like three other people on this beach. And they keep and they, they drive it home so far as when they show kids on the beach, it's the same three character designs repeated constantly. Yeah, I mean, the, the hairstyle, the clothes is really similar with the characters. They don't really, I mean, there's one guy, I guess the kind of stuck out, I don't recall his name, but he was like a nerd with a big... Uh, uh, he was like a white kid with an afro and, and thick glasses. He looked a bit different, but otherwise they all sort of, you know, like random group of teens. They don't stick out. They're not interesting. And the film spends, uh, especially later in the film, a lot more time with them than with um, Martin Brody, you know, the, the hero of the first film. Which makes me wonder, did they not have Brody for too many shooting days so they were kind of forced to build more around the kids? Possibly, uh, you know, and that, that's a pretty good point. I also think that, I mean, you can just tell looking at uh, Roy Scheider's performance as Martin Brody that he doesn't want to be in the movie. He just seems bored shitless the entire time. Yeah, which is a which is another gag in the Mad Magazine parody that that his expression never changes. No, his expression uh, doesn't change. You are certainly right about that. I mean, there's a... You do get a little bit of investigation about the shark where they find a killer whale that has shark marks on it and um, Martin Brody's Which, hey, like, where, hey, I think it's a shark. Where is Amity, by the way? 
Do they ever clarify exactly where in the United States that is? Where is Amity? Oh, only because, like, killer whales, as I understand it, have a kind of limited range. I mean, it's a fictional location. There's not a real Amity Island. It's fictional, but it's not magical. No, it's not magical. It's uh, on the East Coast. It's in New England. But other than that, I don't, I don't know if they say specifically what state. And they could, and, and I might have missed that. And if you want to talk about that, you know... Uh, Drop us a line at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sequelcast or send us an email at sequelcast at gmail.com. Huh, actually, it looks like Killer Whales can actually get there. Really? You're yeah. doing some research? Uh, some really quick sloppy research, which seems to confirm that Killer Whales can or have been sighted uh, off the coast of Maine. But actually, although that that's another fantasy in my head, I, I like to imagine that that, was, that that killer whale was the orca from Orca who was just killed by the shark from Jaws. Ugh, jeez, yeah, Orca, sort of a Jaws knockoff film about a killer whale. <laughs> Possibly worthy of a sequel commentary, we'll see. Possibly. Um, gee, what else about Jaws 2? So, a, a large amount of the... The second half of the film has uh, Mike Brody, the Martin Brody's older son, goes out sailing with his friends, and he takes his uh, younger brother, Sean, with him. And uh, they kind of leave early in the morning, kind of like a secret teenage thing. Oh, we're going to go and uh, and go out to the lighthouse. With if the you know and, what I mean. Yeah, right, go to the lighthouse and... Sure, I'll take a little brother with me so he doesn't tattle on me to my uh, mom and dad. That's kind of the whole idea. And uh, in the midst of that stuff starting, you get the the other sequence, uh, aside from the earlier one, which I talked about, of uh, Martin Brody, uh, you know, firing at the ocean, thinking he sees a shark, is you see uh, just a, a separate group, uh, a separate couple, is uh, out on the ocean in their boat, kind of a romantic... Uh, Get away, as it were. And all of a sudden, the uh, the shark attacks the boat and uh, kills the boyfriend and the girl. Yeah, you think the girl's dead, but then they come back and uh, Martin Brody, uh, played by Ray Scheider, is looking into it and he sees the girl, like, huddled, shaking. She survived somehow. She hid underneath part of the boat, not to be seen, I guess, by the shark. Which is weird, because isn't under the boat the worst place to be? I don't mean underwater the boat. I don't mean underneath the water underneath the boat, but like in the boat underneath the uh, the little bench or whatever. Oh, you mean below decks? Below decks, yes. I guess that makes slightly more sense. I'll... Well, it's not even below deck. She's on top of the she's on top of the boat on the outside, but she's like covered by a a towel or something. Which which does bring up a question. Exactly how does this shark know who to kill and, and, and how is this shark hunting? Because it's almost it's it's almost like the shark is psychic. I know there's a human on top of those skis. No, he, he seems to be yeah. going for diff, intentionally difficult prey. And the prey he attacks is, is pretty random too. I mean that's 
you know, even if in the first Jaws, the shark didn't kill that many people when he did each time, it was sort of memorable and with a slightly different sort of a set piece. And and this one here, you're right, it's random, it, it's pretty separated. I didn't really find that the film had momentum until near the end, where uh, the uh, all the teenagers and the the little kid, they're out with their boats going towards the lighthouse, and uh, the shark starts attacking them, and the boats uh, sort of wreck, and they tie their life, life uh, rafts together, and they're sort of on these life rafts on these overturned boats, sort of all huddled together as the shark is circling around. And meanwhile, you know, the, the dad, Martin Brody, is coming to the rescue. Eliminate clutter and embrace the freedom of HyperX wireless gaming gear for PC and console. Power through all the great monthly PlayStation Plus games with the Cloud Stinger Core Wireless for PlayStation. Enjoy lightweight comfort with reliable wireless freedom so you won't miss plot points when you head to the fridge. High-quality HyperX wireless products can be found at most fine retailers, as well as online at Target, Micro Center, Best Buy, Amazon, Walmart, or shop directly at HyperX.com and HP.com. Oh, you know, that actually brings up another another story beat, uh, is that apparently it comes up in the movie's exposition that sharks supposedly hunt or are attracted to uh, r- rhythmic vibrations. It's a bit of a point, but I mean, they don't... Uh, go into it that much. It's not like the first movie where you have uh, the the Matt Hooper character played by Richard Dreyfus is a um, a shark scientist. There's a better. Well, word I guess than that. became a tenured professor after his adventure in the first film and left town. Yeah, I don't know, and you know, there's all the whole stuff in the first film about how uh, Martin Brody is scared of the water. And they kind of make jokes about it at the end of the film. Like, if, if he's really that scarred by the shark experience, why doesn't he become a police chief in a different town? You see, I like to imagine that there's a Jaws uh, 1.5 where he tried to do that, and it was nothing but bear attacks. Giant bears. Mm. And that he's even more scared of the woods. Could be, I don't but, know. But really, the, the whole line about the shark's... Uh, being attracted to rhythmic vibrations, which I think is just complete bullshit they made up for the movie. It's only there to set up the climax. Yeah, it's not set up very well. But uh, before we get into the the climax, let's talk a a little bit about SequelCast.com. Yeah, before the climax, there's the tease. So SequelCast.com is where you can go to check out old episodes of... uh, the sequel cast, every single episode is on there. And you can get um, links to things like if you like the show and you want to help us out, you can donate via PayPal at sequelcast.com slash donate. Or you can buy SequelCast merchandise from our Cafe Pes- Press uh, page link on there. And um, we have Amazon.com links that you can check out. And if you go through there next time you do your Amazon.com shopping, we get a little taste of that. Every little bit helps. And, uh, of course, there's our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sequelcast, where we do a lot of uh, stuff about the show, talk about current movie news, all that sort of thing. So, um, did I leave out anything? I think I covered uh, most of this no, at the top I of the show. don't believe so. We already mentioned Stitcher earlier. Right, which you can check out that app at stitcher.com slash sequelcast and uh, listen to sequelcast streaming on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio at stitcher.com slash sequelcast. 
All right, so that's our little break uh, talking about the website. Now, now back to the sequel cast. Back to the sequel cast with Jaws 2. Will Madden Thrasher survive Jaws 2? Stay tuned. But first, some light jazz. No. Uh, Ooh, lay that shark fin on me. Mmm, baby. <laughs> Jaws 2 has a uh, climax at the uh, at this island where there's a bunch of electrical stations and stuff. Yeah, it's like a like an offshore power relay uh, center for the island. Something like that. You know, it's not... It's funny. The teenagers are trying to get to the lighthouse. You think the climax would take place? In, I don't know. Like inside the lighthouse, where they could turn, where they could turn the light lighthouse on the sh- giant laser and well, just fry the shark as it tries to climb up the side of the lighthouse. Because oh yeah, the shark can walk. Well, that might have been more fun than what happens in Jaws two. Well, I do have a fantasy that in that. In a mostly serious killer animal movie, at the end, you just gleefully have a disregard for biology and have the, the animals start doing things that are completely impossible. Yeah, I mean, you also... I mean, the the big little fight at the end is... Uh, I just called it a big little fight. That makes no sense. The battle of big little fight. Mm-hmm, is really anticlimactic. Because the shark is going around, and the kids, you know, all get to safety on this small island. And there is an underwater uh, power cable that uh, Martin Brody gets a hold of. And they, uh, he knows there's electricity going through it. He holds it up and kind of like... He's banging it with his shoe, isn't he? He's banging it with an oar oh, to yeah. create a rhythmic vibration, which makes the shark charge the power cable and uh, Brody kind of throws it into his mouth and the shark gets electrocuted to death. Which, like, on the one hand, uh, electrocution is a real kick-ass way to to kill off your, your giant monster by tricking it to bite down on the power cable. But the only reason that works in the slightest is because they they set it up earlier that sharks are attracted to rhythmic vibrations. But they don't set it up that well. I mean, it's not nearly as cool what happens to the shark in the first movie where they have it explode. True. Very, very true. <laughs> and, and frankly, I would half expect botting the electrical cable would only stun the shark and then give it superpowers as the electricity powers up its body. And they can fight electro jaws at the end. Yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, so that's... This whole movie is just very anticlimactic. It just doesn't seem necessary. It is... It's kind of nice it's back on Amity Island and with some of the same characters, but it's like, to what end? Oh, the shark kills more people. Big deal. They don't try to do something interesting with the setting. They don't... They should have got Richard Dreyfuss back for a cameo at the least. And really, there's no, there's no interesting conflict because it's just Brody trying to warn people about a shark again and er, despite the same his place. track record. Right. His one-for-one track record. Everyone's still reacting the same way. And the thing is, like, I see a lot of opportunity with with the kids' characters. I mean, when it comes down to it, Brody really should be a local hero, and they could really have a fascinating story where where his older son, you know, has grown up in the shadow of his hero father and, and does something stupid, like goes after the shark on his own. 
And, you know, if the climax of the movie, they probably should both have an active hand in defeating the shark and, and would learn, the son would learn responsibility and the father, and, and they would also respect each other. Yeah, I mean, a story like that, Thrasher would give some juice to the plot. Instead, uh, what do we see is uh, a lot of passive characters at the end while uh, Roy Scheider is Martin Brody, you know, the father, does everything. Not only that, it's not like they have the son. If the son would have been out to hunt the shark with his friends or something, that would have been kind of cool. Like, I'll do I'll do what my dad did, but even better. But no, he's, they're just kind of going to hang out and make out at the lighthouse off in the island in the distance, offshore. Yep. It's ridiculous. This movie just made me really angry. And it's such a steep decline from... Jaws to Jaws 2. Well, did you feel your time was completely wasted or, or just mostly wasted? Or I would say mostly wasted. I mean, I like the the opening credits with the fish and the kind of spooky music is fun. I, I enjoyed the boat exploding in the beginning, but more just because it was funny. And I liked uh, Roy Scheider, you know, running, shooting at the ocean. You know, I mentioned the few scenes I liked, but other than those choice, I don't know, six minutes. <laughs> yeah, I do think it was kind of a waste of time. I don't know. I mean, this is... I would say Jaws 2, dare I say, is one of the worst films I've seen for the sequel cast. Really? Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm not afraid to say that. So, uh, well, why don't we rate this film on a scale of one to five stars? I give Jaws 2 one and a half stars. I would say the few scenes that are kind of interesting keep it from getting, you know, like one star. And that John Williams has some nice music in here. It's nice to see the actors again. But it's just uh, the definition of a lazy sequel. Uh, I'm going to, only because of what little of it I've seen, I'm going to give it three, only because that introduction was really, really effective when I was a kid. I do have a, a hunch that if I ever saw the whole movie all the way through, that my rating would go down to a two, maybe even as low as a one. I will, however... Give the Mad Magazine parody uh, four out of five. Uh, it is fantastic. Uh, the only thing that holds it back is its source material. You know, we just got a comment that came in from sequel cast listener Venetius Antoniacci. He yes. said, I never watched Jaws 2 and really have no interest in watching it. Thank you. Uh, what a. <laughs> it's an honest comment. Uh, I don't know if I can say much about it. You see, if we had known that earlier, we wouldn't have had to have done this movie. <laughs> no, the listeners voted on Jaws, got the most votes out of the, the poll that we put up. Well, which one did she vote for? Sequel cast. It's a he. And uh, there's no way I can see who voted for what. And that's what's wrong with democracy. Hmm. All right, well, let's do a pitch a sequel in which we, you know, pitch a sequel to Jaws 2, pretending the other sequels never existed. All right. I got one. Go for it. All right, so this will be Jaws three: The Gathering Storm, and it'll it'll start almost immediately uh, where Jaws two ends. Where as uh, 
where, uh, as it turns out, the shark does get superpowers by having all the islands of electricity shunted into its body when it uh, when it bites the cable. So the movie begins just as the other one ends, where everybody's happy the shark's dead, but then there's strobes in the water, and the shark rises out of the water and keeps rising. That's right, the shark now has an ion craft effect and can fly, and can fire off bolts of electricity. So he immediately kills Brody. He immediately kills Brody's son. He pretty much immediately kills all of the surviving cast in the first five minutes. And now the town of Amity is without power and under siege by a flying storm shark who's just blasting uh, everyone out of the sky. And hey, because I like this idea, the movie, the climax of the movie, they turn the, uh, some, some enterprising new characters who will come to know and love – uh, will repurpose the Amity Lighthouse and turn it into a laser, which uh, which uh, fries the shark alive. And he explodes in a giant electrical explosion, complete with one of those pointless uh, and superfluous uh, space rings that flies out of it. Hmm. Let's see, if I was pitching a sequel to Jaws 2, I would call it um, Jaws... The beginning, and it'd be set in like a prehistoric uh, caveman times. Would be a cave- as opposed to post-historic caveman. Times. Yes, as opposed to post-historic caveman times, and we built a caveman named uh, Caveman Brody, a distant relative to a Martin Brody, <laughs> and uh, they're on you know an early, early, the prehistoric whatever the uh, equivalent of where the future Amity Island will be. And there's a giant prehistoric shark. And it's like early man's encountered with a shark. When you don't even have, like all you have is a raft. There's not even a proper boat. You don't have guns. You don't have flare guns. How do you deal with a prehistoric shark? When like fish is the only source of food on this island for this prehistoric caveman. Uh, Ancient ancestors of the Brody clan. I would call it Jaws. Maybe even Jaws Zero at the beginning. There you go. That's my pitch of sequel. That's great. So, um, for our next segment, let's do sequel what news. You... Oh, okay. Right, because we started that last episode. I think that was a good segment, didn't you? I think so. So, what we're going to do with um, sequel news, let me pick a story. Off of uh, about three bears, fa- oh yeah, three little bears, uh, and one is just right. The other one's too big and too small. No, let me look at one that I have posted recently to Facebook.com/slash um, SequelCast. What do you think about the uh, Beverly Hills Cop TV show? Uh, well, I'll, I will give it a fair shake. I suspect it's only going to be an amusing pilot. Uh, if it gets picked, picked up, up, it'll yeah. be lucky if it lasts six episodes. I just, I just think now is probably the worst time for a Beverly Hills Cop series. Well, you know, CBS, um, you know, committed to a pilot, which means they'll film it, and it's being directed by Men in Black uh, three director Barry Sonnenfeld, but. It just be, like you said, Thrasher, just because it's a pilot doesn't mean it'll go to series. Although I think at the very least with Eddie Murphy uh, doing a supporting, or maybe a cameo in it, I'm not quite sure. I, I would think it'll end up out there somehow, but you never know. 
I think uh, yeah, they were trying to get Beverly Hills Cop 4 as a movie for several years, and they just never got it off the ground. And so they were kind of rethinking it as a TV show, and it deals with Axel Foley's son, Aaron Foley, who is played by Brandon T. Jackson. You see, he needs a kick-ass name. He needs a name like Axel. Take a time machine back to before the world went to hell, around the year 2000. The 80s and 90s were so rad. The movies, the music, the TV, the games, that's what I want to talk about. If you're cool enough, join us and listen to Less Than 2000, because that's all we talk about. Adam and Chad live Less Than 2000. For every episode of No More Whoppers that you listen to, we will send you a 25 cent coupon for participating Kroger's. How many Kroger's are participating? None, but you're still getting the coupon. And it's like 25 cents in 1985 dollars. Right, so today that's like... 28 cents. No More Whoppers, take that to the bank and smoke it. On the HyperX Podcast Network and nomorewhoppers.com. Eliminate clutter and embrace the freedom of HyperX wireless gaming gear for PC and console. Powered through all the great monthly PlayStation Plus games with the Cloud Steiner Core Wireless for PlayStation. Enjoy lightweight comfort with reliable wireless freedom so you won't miss plot points when you head to the fridge. High-quality HyperX wireless products can be found at most fine retailers, as well as online at Target, Best Buy, and Amazon, where you can shop for them directly at HyperX.com and HP.com. Fox Foley after Axel Fox. The, uh, uh, the mask I, guy. I could kind of see that. Although I suspect there won't be nearly as many Wonder World references as we would hope. Yeah, you know, um, old Judge Reinhold is uh, rumored to be uh, in the pilot. I hope he plays a real judge. They did that on the Clerks uh, animated series. And they did that on Arrested Development, but why not make it a, a trilogy Trifecta. and have him promoted to judge? <laughs> I think the concept uh, shows promise. Another actor that's going to be in the pilot is Kevin Pollack. Hmm. So. I don't know. I, I bet, you know, they'll have to, I, I imagine they'd have to use the classic Axel F music as a theme song. But maybe not. Maybe that'll sound too dated. Well, I mean, I bet they would hip it up. They would try to modernize it. Yeah, that could be. Had a bass line in there. <laughs> Give it some dubstep. Put some rock off fusion in the mix. <laughs> no, we didn't talk about this last week for sequel news, did we? I don't think we did. No, 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 we didn't. Okay, good. Just making sure as we're recording. For Regardless the audience. of when or where you're listening to it, last week we didn't. Yep. Okay. So now that we've talked about uh, sequel news, now on to what you're watching. And I'm going to start a new rule. Since we started the video game sequel cast show, we cannot Thanks. talk about video games on what you're watching on sequel okay. cast. So I'll begin since, uh, since, you I, can. since I can. Exactly. I rented a film called, uh, I finally got to see Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, nice. What? Wait, I thought you said we couldn't talk about video games. This is a movie. Inspired by video games. We can't talk about a video game we've played. No, I, I know. I'm just I'm just heckling you. Uh, I'm, I'm heckling you, but then you jekyled me right back. There you go. Yeah, no, you know, I, I thought uh, Wreck-It Ralph was better than I expected. And... Well, uh, yeah? 
Well, we, we finally have a good video game movie, and it's not based on any particular video game. Well, and that being said, aside from like the first 15 minutes, there's not huge amounts of video game references throughout the film. He's not running into different video game characters. I thought he would have gone into more, uh, gone inside different video game worlds and stuff like that, and that doesn't really happen as much as you might think. Which I'm glad they, I'm glad they the limited trailer. the number of worlds he inhabited. And are you glad that the worlds, you know, aren't based off a particular video game, but it's more like a well, takeoff on a genre? Well, you can tell the writers, directors, and and uh, designers completely understood the vocabulary of video games. It all made yes. sense. They all looked like games that should exist. Right. And I found myself uh, moved at the end, and I was surprised. I didn't think that would happen, because I found the two main characters kind of annoying. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they're actual misfits. They, they really made that work. Wreck-It Ralph, I thought, was just sort of a very flat, kind of sad sack uh, character. And um, was it Penelope Von Schweetz, I think? Uh, Penelope Von Schweetz. Penelope Von Schweetz, played by Sarah Silverman, is annoying, but then you learn more about her and you start to feel bad for her. And, uh, <laughs> I thought that was... I really thought that was fantastic. And I love... And, uh, hey, uh, spoilers, skip ahead a minute or so. I love that they had the... Like, like just enough princess action that must have made the Disney shareholders very, very happy, but not enough to ruin the movie. Uh, the thing that surprised me, and I guess I will talk about a video game for one second, but it's related to the movie Wreck-It Ralph. So, yes. Um, uh, my wife and I have been playing a game called, uh, what is it? Let me look up the name so I get the name correct. Uh, Sonic All-Stars Racing Transformed. Do they use cars? They use cars that also change into boats and planes as you're driving on the same track. But they they can already run faster than a car can drive. Uh, Yep. Yep, that's true. Uh, Despite all that, uh, a character from Wreck-It Ralph is in the video game. Oh, which one? Wreck-It Ralph. Which makes a lot less sense than uh, Vanellope von Schweetz. Well, I mean, he's the iconic character on the poster. He might be the iconic character on the poster, but uh, her whole storyline is about them building a car for her that looks like a bunch of like chocolate smashed together. <laughs> so that you can't drive as that character driving that car that's like a central part of the movie, I thought was kind of disappointing. Well, that's true. That is a shame. But yeah, no, I'd recommend uh, Wreck-It Ralph. I uh, was better than I was expecting. So what have you been watching, Thrasher? Well, I I have, sadly, I have not seen uh, seen much since last week. I've been doing, uh, I've been doing a, a lot more reading. And regrettably, I chose to read a terrible book. Did you finish it? I'm, I'm about halfway through. What is uh, it? Have you ever heard of the the novelist John Norman? No. Okay, so you you were in for a treat. I've actually been waiting to bring this up because it has the potential to derail the episode. Um, what I am reading is uh, Priest Kings of Gore. Now imagine a, a mashup between Conan the Barbarian and 
the John Carter of Mars novels, but with all the excitement, daring do, adventure, and characterization drained out of it. That's what reading this book is like. Uh, every time it looks like every time it looks like a story is about to be told, that gets taken away from you. Every time a good idea is introduced, don't worry, it will be forgotten, and three bad ideas will become permanent fixtures in the novel. You know, I've never heard of these Gore novels, but I'm shocked to see there's over thirty of them have been written. Oh, he wrote a lot, and then there were like there were a number of official quote-unquote official uh, sequels written by other uh, authors. Oh, were some of them written by other authors? Okay. Uh, I think I think the last... I want to say the last few, because I thought John Norman passed. He's I, I better double not check dead. He's still alive. He's not dead. Oh, never mind. Well, I guess he is still going. But yeah, they're just these... They're, they're just these very bland s- s- sword and sorcery stories without the sorcery that are in fact science fiction because it turns out the priest kings are, are really aliens that are maintaining a human habitat on this planet for some Lord knows what reason. They've never gone into it in the book that they're actually in uh, that I'm reading. But the thing is, these these books are uh, are sort of, uh, notorious and infamous because um, slavery is a big part of of the setting. And uh, including uh, including sex slavery, and as the books go on, that aspect of that aspect gets pushed more and more to the foregrounds. Uh, I have in my collection one of the later books uh, in the series, and it's almost nothing but like descriptions of what happens to the slaves. And when it comes down to it, a lot of it gets really horrific. Uh, and the, one of the other reasons these books are, are uh, notorious is that there's actually a subset of the bondage community that practices bondage modeled after the master-slave relationship as uh, detailed in these books. Hmm. Oh, and there was a sex cult uh, in Britain in the late 90s that several people escaped from because they had, had outright uh, kidnapped like three women at one point. I don't blame the books for that. Those people were crazy. It's just that they just happened to be modeling their craziness after these books. Had you read any of the books before? No. The whole the reason I was introduced to it is that there were two movies based on these books, and the second one was featured on an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. And, and I happened to notice in the opening credits, oh, based on the novel – and at at various stages of my of my life i've encountered like bits and pieces of gore ephemera and then this past year for whatever reason i've been finding these old paperbacks of these novels in every second hand store i go to so i just decided well i need something to collect i might as well collect these hmm. even if it is a real slog reading them but you don't think you're going to read all 30 books i seriously doubt it um <laughs> I, I I mean I'm having enough I'm having enough trouble getting through book number three, and that's the second one I've attempted to read. The first one I just put down after 25 pages and have never picked up again. You know it's funny you mentioned that Thrasher because I was I've been reading something that I tried to read when I was younger and couldn't get through, and it was uh, Chris Claremont, you know, who's better known as writing a bunch of the X Men comics from the 90s. Uh, wrote a trilogy of novels that were a sequel to the uh, Lucasfilm uh, movie uh, Willow. And uh, so I've been reading the first book in that series called Shadow uh, Moon. And it tries to distance itself from Willow as much as possible in the beginning. It's kind of weird. 
because they give uh, Willow a new name. They call him Thorn Drumheller. But it's the same character? It's the same character, but they constantly refer to him as Thorn Drumheller after the beginning. Why? Uh, Sorsha, Mad Mardigan's uh, girlfriend, wife, or whatever, uh, gives him that name. Just, Just because. There's some explanation for it, but it's pretty lame. She's like, you know, in my father's language, that means valiant warrior or, or something along those lines. So I'll have to see what happens as the book goes on, but I'm very confused from the beginning of it. Oh, and this book originally like, came out in 95. I, some of my friends have read those, and I've heard if you can get past the first book, they're very enjoyable. Okay, I'll have to keep that in mind. So, uh, want to talk about one more thing that you've been watching? Well, you know, I suppose I can't. Something, something good. Uh, oh, wait, no. I already talked about the Jack Kirby comics last week, didn't I? You did. Oh, dear. Well, dang. Cause I, I just wrapped those up. Oh, actually, I started reading uh, the novel Protector by Larry Niven. It's uh, another one of his, uh, his uh, known space novels. And Larry Niven is is an author I really really enjoy. I, I both respect and admire the man, uh, and and had the distinct honor of partying with him at uh, Comic Palooza last mm. year. He showed up to the Skirmisher 10th anniversary party. We all had a good time, and uh, and P- Protector is just a neat sort of sick and twisted thought experiment about human aging and mortality. <laughs> hmm. Where you know it takes place a few like a. Uh, I don't think they give a date, but I'm thinking like about 200-ish years in the future from the 70s, which is uh, when it was written. And, you know, there's a big civilization out in the asteroid belts and a uh, and a uh, and a spaceship from another civilization uh, comes careening through the solar system. And so this uh, part-time smuggler who is planning – who has found an old American space probe that he's planning to sneak past the authorities and sell directly to a museum on the moon picks it up on his radar and figures, well, what the hell? History's never going to forget the first man to meet an alien. It might as well be me. And so he – this part-time smuggler, it becomes the first human ever to make contact uh, with an alien. And the alien is this sort of ugly, leathery, turtle-faced thing uh, that is coming – that's coming into the solar – our solar system looking for a, a lost population uh, of part of its race. But its race has this really weird life cycle where he's looking for a population of breeders, and he is a protector, which is the third phase of the life cycle. And it's really, it's really neat. It's just this, this meditation on 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 aging and mortality, and then the way your mind and body improves and fails as you get older. Hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah, and right. if you've been reading his other known space books, there's there's plenty of other stuff to keep you to keep you entertained because there's uh, all all of his known space books. There's some sort of overlap. There's references to things from other novels and short stories in the series. So it it really is a nice body of work if you can find all the different all the all the different uh, stories and novels that make it up. Sadly, they're they're very very scattered. The best place to start is probably the three books of known space collection. Great. Okay, uh, if you want to check out more episodes of SequelCast, you can do so at SequelCast.com or go to our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SequelCast. Uh, tune in next week where we will talk about Jaws 3, also known as Jaws 3D.
Oh, yeah. And I've got a lot to say about that. Oh, great. So, her the sequel cast. This is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Sane. Sharks are attracted to rhythmic vibrations. I'm Walter Matthau. 